This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, family class. Welcome to the 73rd episode of In Class with Car. Dr. Gray Carr, I'm here. Uh, hey. Professor Karen Hunter, how are you today, this beautiful Saturday? Yes, it is beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm getting some sun. I'm a little sweaty. Oh, uh, yes, yes. I, I got to do my sauna before this, and uh, I'm still cooking. So That's it's good. Fine. That's good. Getting all the toxins sweated out, getting all the purity. Uh, it's in, and I just want to say again, you know, there's so much going on this week. So I know we talked briefly about the Olympics. Uh, there was a lot of Simone Biles commentary. I'm not yeah. going to the negative stuff. Um, and a lot of commentary around self-help and, you know, women, you know, having to take care of themselves. Yes. You know, but I've been watching these Olympics. <sighs> And you you have messed me up forever. I just wanted to say that. Oh. You have, you have made it difficult for me to watch anything outside of that social structure, governance structure. Mm. Mm. So I'm watching the Olympics and um, rooting for everybody that's Black, which I've always done, just naturally. But no question. I'm also now questioning this, what is this nationalism? What, what does it mean to, to uh, USA, USA? What does that even mean? And there was a gymnast who's not from America. Right. One of the, one of the few gymnasts uh, who, you know, um, from Costa Rica. Yes, yes. Uh, worked somehow the first ever. She's 19 years old. Yeah. She worked out in, in her routine a way to let the world know that she's black and she cares about black lives. That's right. And That's right. it was That's it was right. interesting, you know, because there's a ban. You cannot protest, right? At all. That's what they say. But she worked it into her her uh, routine, her floor routine. And you said that's what they say. So I well, just that's wanted, what, no, that's what they say because you see the athletes figuring it out. Yes. Yes. So I just want to give her name, shout her out. Uh 18-year-old uh, her name is Luciana Alvarado. Luciana uh, Alvarado, Lucy Alvarado. Yes. And as she was doing her routine at the end, she got down on one knee, put a black fist in the air. Um, and, you know, she had planned it. She planned it out. She said it's the importance of everyone treated with respect and dignity and everyone having the same rights because we're all the same and we're all beautiful and amazing. And this was for Breonna Taylor. This is for Mont uh, Arby. I mean, she, George Floyd. And uh, yeah, she named uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and did that thing. So shout out to her. No, shout out to her and shout out to you, Professor Hunter, for framing our conversation today. We're in a unique window. Last week, week before, this week, next week, this Olympics framework is something we're taking advantage of. And the as, as narrative continues to grow, and we continue to contribute content and more and more people join the narrative family with a very deliberate objective of building the new world. We've been able to take this front porch conversation on Saturdays as not only um, a bridge to that deeper structural conversation, because again, individuals don't beat institutions. That's why we're institution building. I'd also use it as what we have to use real time events for, which is our classroom. 
everything. We know this as teachers and every teacher in this room right now knows that everything is a text. In the Odu Ifa and the Yoruba tradition, um, they might say, for example, that whatever created what we exist in in this reality created it in its broad, unknowable expansiveness. And as we walk the earth, we understand that everything we experience here is a microcosm of everything that is. So in that respect, when you build a shrine, what you're really doing is shrinking down to your ability to understand symbols that represent everything that is. So the Yoruba might say, for example, among the Yoruba people, they may say the world is a shrine. And that's why I often think of the world as a classroom because these are microcosms. So we're in the classroom of the Olympics and we have taken full advantage of it thanks to you bringing in folks and having conversations. And I was rereading uh, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, Deborah Draper's book. Here it is, we, as we talked to her last week and just reflecting, and we'll get this out of the way on the way to the Olympics, Matt Robinson, of course, Jackie Robinson's brother. And of course I'm moving books around looking for other things. And I came upon, she talks about him. She gets to him near the end of the book where she says that he, you know, he came back and he wasn't one of the people who was blessed with uh, fame and fortune. Very, really, none of them were. The best who made out was uh, James Laval, but Jesse Owens, the rest of them. But I was moving stuff around, and I remembered I had a copy of this. This is a book called The Black Bruins. There's Jay Robinson playing football for UCLA. <laughs> you understand? And I remember, oh, wow, I forgot I had The Black Bruins. Jay Robinson, Woody Strode, the actor, who was an athlete, Tom Bradley. <laughs> it was a, the Black Bruins, these are all, oh, you say, and so he talks about Mac Robinson in this book. And of course, Mac Robinson, Jack Robinson's brother, they both started out Pasadena Junior College. And it talks about the fact that Mac Robinson, and I just want to do this very quickly on our way to our sister, because she is, you opened her and that really helps. Um, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, page 55. Yeah, this is what the author writes. The author is a guy named James Johnson. He says, Matt couldn't find a decent job. He, is, he was seen sweeping downtown streets in Pasadena while wearing his Olympic sweatshirt with a big USA on the front. I never did understand those people, he recalled years later. I had to take whatever I could get. Matt was fired when a judge ordered all swimming pools opened to African-Americans and the city retaliated by firing all the black workers, including Mac. Jackie said that incident broke Mac's spirit. Now I gotta go back to, I never had it made to see what Jack said about his brother. Four years after the Olympics, Colin Fentress, sports editor to the California Eagle, checked in on Mac. He was out of work. California Eagle, by the way, the black newspaper, the great Carlotta Bass, go look her up, you know. Uh, he was out of work. Fentress lamented that something was radically wrong with a system wherein an athlete is the toast of a race, a nation and a world one year, and a few years later, a forgotten man. And it goes on. But the reason I'm bringing it up, and it goes on about his records at Pasadena Junior College, it goes on about the fact that with very little training, in fact, I should just read this, Mac almost didn't make the Olympics, he didn't have the money to attend the trials in the U.S. team, finally a group of businessmen raised $150 for him and a teammate, two factors kept Mac from winning the gold, let's just pause here for a second, because he's running with Jesse Owens, this is what stopped him from beating Jesse. He didn't have the coaching that Owens had, and he couldn't afford to buy new track shoes. I want y'all pause here on this. This is Jack Robinson's brother, who my man Conrad Worrell, um, the new recent ancestor, his father Walter was over, remember I said this last week, the black Y there, and knew Matt Robinson. 
So Conrad grew up knowing Mac Robinson and the legend was, y'all talking about Jackie, Mac was the man and he was faster than Jesse Owens. This confirms it. He said, Jesse got the coaching. I didn't. And I could not even get the new pair of spikes I needed. He donned the worn down spikes he had worn all season at Pasadena Junior College. He also said Owens had the distinct advantage of running in the inside lane. With that, Jesse Owens in 1936 broke the world record in a time of 20.7 seconds, a record that stood for 20 years. Robinson finished second, point four seconds behind Owens. With worn down spikes and very little coaching, he almost beat Jesse. If he had just had a new pair of spikes, we mm. might not be, we'd be talking about Jesse Owens won three gold medals. Also, and Matt Robinson actually beat him in the one, he would have had four, but Matt, my point is this, in this country, as we talked about last week, the Olympics being cosplay for nationalism, these black athletes to this day, the people who call, who shout USA, 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 whether they're screaming it at the Olympics or screaming it in St. Louis when they're trying to tell people I'm not wearing a mask or screaming it in Alabama when they say I'm not getting a vaccine or screaming it at Lansing when they're threatening the life of a black woman state legislator saying they're going to kill her because she's going to work or screaming it at the governor of Michigan or California when they say we have to have public safety first. The result of white nationalism domestically is when they decide instead, instead of doing the rebel yell and the hillbilly yell, they have now replaced it with USA. When they say in Georgia that now the state legislature in Georgia this last week uh, said they're going to now try to take over the Fulton County Election Board to preserve the integrity of elections. When they say integrity, they mean white power. When they're passing anti-critical race theory statutes, what that means is we have to preserve the integrity of the curriculum. By integrity, they mean white power. When they say the people don't trust the election, the people they mean is white people. And when they say the American people, they mean white people. And they fold all that into those three little letters, USA, USA. So that a man who was a medalist in the 36 Olympics was sweeping the streets of Pasadena, California in his Olympic uniform with them same three letters, USA. That is the social structure. And every four years, the Summer Olympics, we get to use this classroom to dissolve those barriers. Because what this shows is we always root for everybody Black. Shout out to our sister Issa Rae for saying what we all say, except you said at your mouth and it caught on. I'm rooting for everybody Black. Now we say, like Issa Rae says, no, like Black people always say. And so when we see our young sister, Luciana Alvarado, oh, there's a story there that there's mm -hmm. a story there when you brought her up that really, it really gives us a moment this weekend to think about this in, in the context of some broader things from her native country. But I wanna ask you something before we, we enter that port because it's, it's very closely related. Um, we were talking off, um, off camera. Uh, a brother raised a question in social media and then now you can direct him to the narrative site to go through the six uh, categories and uh, our conceptual category structure, and then the seventh question: How do we free us from? So, so let's pause there for a second because I spent the last two days annotating. We're catching up, you know, to get all of the videos annotated. It is a lot of work. Um, we also put a social the, the, your ways of knowing the 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 um, curriculum is on narrative in the resources section in written form. And then there's a video because when you are on my show, 
first time I ever met you. When we first had our gifts. Yeah, we had a conversation about it and you broke it down. One, two, three, four, five, six. I added the seven, how do it free us? That's just because seven is the number of completion and I just, six bothers me. But um, uh, yeah, and it a, makes guy, sense. a guy asked why that order? Why does the social structure come before the governance structure? And Yes, yes, yes. You asked that. I was looking to see if I could find. We we added it though. It's been uh, Sonia Sanchez. That question, "How do it free us?" is from a play that she wrote, and she describes you know the context of that play. And there's there's a there's a book of her plays that was published recently, and I don't know what I did with it that fast, but it's not important. We'll, 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 we'll it'll be on the narrative side. But the question of why social structure comes first, and we know in that first category is who are African people to other people. Um, and, and again, these, 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 these conceptual categories are designed for us to ask better questions, realizing that we may not ever come to consensus on what the best answers are, but the, the, in education, when you ask better questions, it drives inquiry. And so we're really trying to, you know, really emphasize that. But that point of entry, when we ask, you know, why is that first? Well, because, well, obviously we should probably state this for those who haven't gone and looked. The governance question, and now I'm hearing it everywhere. People are emailing me about it. You know, I go to the corner. Somebody says, I see people, we see people. Okay, good, good, good. It's because it's so logical. That's why those concepts. The governance question is who are Africans to each other? And you would think, okay, well, that's what we should ask first. No, no. The point of entry is the world we live in. The world we live in is the social structure we are in, wherever we are in the world. This is going to become very important in a minute. We're going to come back to a young Miss Alvarado and the question of the world and the Olympics. The social structure comes first because the social structure is what we live in. And we have to train ourselves to lower the noise. Think of the social structure as the noise that surrounds us. It's not gonna go away. In the best case scenario, we can silence that noise and think about our relationships in the governance category. Who are we to each other? The family, the community, the imaginary community we're trying to build, the aspirational community, the disagreements we're going to have. But what, what, what we have to train ourselves to do is to lessen that noise that surrounds us. So think of the social structures, think of our obligation by asking that first, by number one, acknowledging it's there and then trying to lower the noise. In many ways, we're trying to reduce the social structure temporarily to, the, to a form of elevator music, maybe music, ambient sound. In other words, it's there, but we're not thinking about it, even as it continues to exert an influence. And so once you lower it, I'll give you a very quick example from the Olympics. The International Olympics Committee is like, nobody protests. Okay. But these athletes, many of them are figuring ways around that. So the social structure is like, no protest. But if you lower the noise of the press releases, if you lower the noise of the curated and edited social media and attempt to propagandize that there's no protest going on and trust your eyes, you'll see, for example, what has been happening, which I think is very interesting, just looking at, at some of the things that, that have happened. Um, some of the teams have figured out how to do it. So I had, I had written a little note, and I don't think I have it anywhere where I can find it, but uh, for example, the 
uh, several teams took knees. The women's, of course, it's the women. You guys think about this. The women's soccer teams started taking knees. And it wasn't the United States first, but then the United States women's soccer team took a knee. Several of the teams started taking knees. They said, what are they doing? Before kickoff, uh-huh. The Australian women's team came out repping the indigenous flag of the indigenous people of Australia. <laughs> no protest, no problem. The International Olympic Committee edited out all the knee taken, edited out the flag, and then reversed the decision. Why? Because the world saw it. <laughs> In other words, and uh, what we saw is that um, uh, the German women said, we don't like this sexist, y'all, we displaying too much skin. So they decided to, to uh, engage in their events fully covered. <laughs> so these little ways, we got to turn down the ambulance. I think the Netherlands as well, because- The Netherlands were the yeah, first, that's right. Yeah, because Pink, uh, you know, paid their fine. She, well, said she was paying her fine. Um, see, and it, we, in fact, that's not cosplay. In fact, here, here's the list. Britain, Chile, they kneeled before their kickoff. Then the United States, Sweden, and New Zealand. Just the Aussies did the indigenous flag. The Germans started wearing full-length leotards. The International Olympic Committee tried to edit it out of all the stuff, but they realized the people saw it. So what happens is, and Antonio Gramsci talks about this in terms of social protest, the Italian Marxists. See, when you live in a hegemonic system or social structure, that system, once it realizes it can't stop that, it will then open up to try to accommodate enough of it to manage it. But what you don't realize is there will come a moment when it overflows, when it, which is why Bob Marley wrote that song, I Shot the Share, when he said, every day the bucket goes to the well, one day the bottom will drop out. Yes, one day the bottom will drop out. That happened to Simone Biles. That happened to me. And that's going to happen to this system. Every day you try to oppress us, one day the bottom's going to bob because we're going to wear you out. And the Olympics helps us understand that. Can we um, for a second? Because I. Oh, no, um, this is the, yeah, of course. We haven't cut um, Yeah, absolutely. No, no. And I know you'll pick up. You said, of course, it's the women. And I know there's some people listening right now, some men that are, oh, why, why you got always, you know? And I want to say, you know, for women, and if we're talking about bondage and terror and, you know, things, women are very have been very close to, to the terror. The men have been too, but there's, um, there's, there's, and I don't know, yeah. we, we got to have this conversation because I feel like every time you do that, I hear nails on a chalkboard. Every time anyone, you know, even with Simone Biles, yeah, black women need safe spaces. And I'm like, so do black men. That's right. So we, we can't allow for the social structure to allow us to forget who we are. That's right? right. And I think that's part of the, 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 the ways of knowing and this thing. That's right. That's how they do it. That's right. That patriarch. I don't know if black people ever really did a patriarchy. I think we've always had community and have been, of course, patriarchal societies and things. But it's it seems like that's antithetical or or it's not it's not who we. It doesn't feel organically us. And so when we do it, you know, when we have these, you know, battles. This is why I mean I love talking with you because not only are you you know brilliant, but there's there's a capacity to you know, allow people to be people 
which allows it, it makes it easy for me to sit and talk with you because I'm not I don't have to sit and check am I am I emasculating him am I you know you know all of the checklists that we have to do we just people have a conversation and I feel like in many ways I, I hope it's a model for people that we can communicate and even you know we don't agree on all things you know we we've, we've had some back and forth on some things but it's always oh, been respect foundationally because there's love foundationally and I think that you know every time I see social media it turns into a this this battle this rap battle this WWE men versus uh, women uh, this versus that and I'm like black people come on we we don't have time for it but it's also counterproductive so yes when you're saying that you're not de denigrating black men not at all not at all and I'm glad you did that because that that is you've given us another example of why we had to have those two separate categories. We have to turn that noise down. Uh, no, societies pre-enslavement, pre-colonial African societies had human issues. And some of them hardened around questions of quote unquote gender roles. And I'm using quote unquote, because that's not a concept that you would have seen the same place anywhere in the world. And I would include white people. These are contrived concepts that are often used to divide. The question, the better question, we think about governance is in terms of how we relate to each other, how do we manage conflict? How do we manage disagreement? How do we uh, police ourselves, for lack of a better term, so that we can raise questions of responsibilities in society that don't harden into hierarchies? Mm. And this is where, for example, the the Nigerian scholar, the Yoruba scholar, Oyewanke Oyewumi, my colleague, Professor Valethea Watkins, talks about her a lot. She wrote a book called The Invention of Women. And she says, when you look in my language pre-invasion, you don't find the gendered roles and the gender in language. The most important relationship in terms of people to people in a family was who was older. Ifeami Adume approaches some of this in terms of her, in her book, we talked about this, male daughters, female husbands, where she says, you know, when the British came in, they couldn't understand how women inherited property. And the Iwo people were like, well, the oldest is the one who has the primary responsibility for inheriting the property and then distributing. And this is, a lot of this is based on how many people are in your family, how many children you had to work the land. And they were like, so you're the oldest and you inherit, but you're a woman. They said, yeah. Okay, we don't even have a concept for that. So we're going to call you a male daughter. In other words, you see how the European, the British couldn't conceive of it only being men who inherit. So therefore they just made the women into male daughters. I mean, and so many, so that's noise. Turn that noise down. I mean, your doomate's trying to turn it down or your woman's trying to turn it down. And, and what you just raised helps us remember with this ambient noise now reduced to background noise that Simone Biles didn't strike a blow for black women. Simone Biles as a black woman struck a blow for human beings and for black people. And if anybody thinks for a minute that she didn't seek comfort, solace, counsel and protection from her grandparents, grandfather and grandmother, then you, don't, uh, you haven't been paying attention. And so people will try to force a gendered lens in or worse, divide human beings' life experiences up into demographic categories and then give themselves credit for somehow recombining categories that are artificially divided to begin with. Uh, that, in my mind, is the definition of intersectionality. I'm sorry. But <laughs> intersectional, why you even got to say that? Oh, because you divided it up in the first place. Okay, can we turn the ambient noise down of your graduate training? 
the ambient noise down of all those intellectual genealogies that you studied as Europe tried to break out of the cages it built not only for itself, but then shipped out of Europe to the rest of us. I understand you're grappling with it and that's good, but what we're gonna do is start from the other side. We're gonna start with who we are to each other. And again, it brings us back to the question, well then why put social structure first? Because that's the noise that surrounds us. And so the idea, the challenge then is to turn that noise down. And part of turning that noise down is recognizing that some of the things that we do, we've never stopped doing. We adapted them to different experiences. But if someone is assaulted in a community where people care about each other, then that community is going to respond. So when people say, Professor Watkins says this all the time, she says, you know, I don't say rape is a woman's issue. It's not to her community. To her nephew or her brother or her, or her daddy or mama is like no and in fact that's why we often hear people say when someone is assaulted you know what don't call the police we'll handle that and i defy anybody to divide that we'll handle that up into hard gender categories <laughs> because that we <laughs> is a communal we so thank you thank you for that because that's a hard because i think the, the rea our natural reaction is to go into our imaginary gender corner and that is not to obscure or otherwise diminish the very real gendered experiences of our people, including problems we have to resolve. It is to say, however, that our best approach to solving those problems requires some concept of community that a governance structure question can raise. How do we deal with this so that you can bring your whole self into and that's going to ultimately help everyone but the olympics hmm, let's think let's think, well well, well let, let, let's use that let's walk across that little bridge to our our sister lucy alvarado uh lucy alvarado is from san jose costa rica and her mother talk about family her mother was a, a an accomplished gymnast who runs some gyms there in costa rica and her mother was the one who began her training. Now, Costa Rica is indigenous people. You have the invaders, the Spanish, and then you have the Africans. But what when you peel back a little bit on Costa Rica, and by the way, they're, they're called, uh, Tico, what they call each other, Tico or Tica, which I found fascinating because speaking very little Spanish, but understanding that Costa Ricans may refer to themselves as Tico, T-I-C-O, Ticos or Tica, feminine, T-I-C-A. So this Tika, Lucy Alvarado. So what does Tika mean? Tika is a very interesting concept. They call themselves Tika because it is a form, as those of you who speak Spanish know, is a form of conveying a sense of, of smallness, which is really a sense of intimacy. So if you say somebody is amigo in Spanish, my friend, my amigo, right? Amigo, mi amigo. Eh? They might say in Costa Rica, amiguito little friend that's more intimate so they call themselves tico tico because it's like that's a, that, that makes little or more and i thought to myself there's got to be some african languages involved in that because when your mother and father are, are there for 50 years or 35 40 years your father makes transition 10 15 years later there's some old dude that comes make sure the grass is cut you say oh here come here come my mom little friend wait a minute 
<laughs> or you get that first boyfriend, where your little friend at? <laughs> we say that in English, but when you say Tika and Tico, it's acknowledging that these people in middle America, we'll come back to middle America in a minute, because we ain't talking about the heartland, Trump people and, 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 and MAGA people and people who can't turn down the noise of the social structure to understand that middle America doesn't go from quote unquote east to west. Middle America goes from south to north, meaning what? North America, Caribbean, Latin America, including South America. What's between What's in the middle? Costa Rica, Panama, Mexico, middle America. <laughs> so we talk about middle America, the T, I'm saying it's gotta be some Ebonics in that. Because we all know about somebody said that's my little friend. Oh, no, no. In fact, we usually don't say it about ourselves. We say it about somebody else. Oh, here comes grandma with her little friend. <laughs> in other words, that intimate, anyway, but that young sister, and I, I kind of tried to, uh, you know, we both you know, looking for some research, looking for her family. I saw her mother, you know, see her. And I'm assuming because she's in uh, a very small country, even geographically, that she's got to have some African ancestry. And I suspect she does. However, did you, were you able to find out anything about oh, her? I'm just saying, looking at her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, right. I mean, my eyes tell me, I mean, Mike Tarico could say he's uh, Italian. How about that? Mike Tarico. Mike Tarico could say he's Italian, but my eyeballs Bruh. tell me there's an African in that family tree. Close. <laughs> Close. Oh. And, and if you're talking about Italy, uh, you wouldn't even have to necessarily have recent African parentage. If you know the history of the Iberian Peninsula and Italy and, and talk about Hannibal, and I, you know, you might have some Africans going all the way back, back. But, but uh, it's interesting because looking at her, so she's from San Jose, major place. And here we are Saturday and we're entering now tomorrow, the month of August. So next week, Louis Armstrong's birthday. And we got to, you know, shout out Louis Armstrong. And this is the month that you know, some people refer to in some ways as the month of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities of League of the World. This is the organization that was started somewhere, you know, the dates people say are varied. Sometimes they say July 17th, sometimes July 20th, sometimes it's August 1st, but everyone agrees 1914 in Jamaica by Amy Ashwood Garvey and her husband, Marcus Garvey. And they often say, oh, Marcus Garvey started the UNIA. Even in the books, I'm saying these very same people who will write whole books about patriarchy somehow figure out a way to leave Amy Ashwood Garvey out as a founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association on their way to a critique of patriarchy. You got to turn that, could you at least reduce your graduate training down to Muzak so you can understand you're actually replicating the thing you claim to be writing a whole book to critique when you start talking about patriarchy and black nationalism, patriarchy and the nation of Islam. And I'll never forget on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March, a lot of the, a lot of the nation of Islam folk uh, gathered at Howard and we had a conversation about it, you know, there. And at one point I said, are y'all critiquing the nation of Islam? You don't know a damn thing about the nation of Islam. And then everybody just started cheering right? because they had gone off into this whole concept of patriarchy in the nation. And I said, do you know Abel Muhammad? Do you know Mother Tanetta Muhammad? Because I know Abel Muhammad. When I was in law school, we invited her to speak at the Black Law Students uh, Banquet. I was the president of Boston that, some, that, that year. And the social structure of the law school, meaning Ohio State, went ballistic. You can't invite myself. Hey, Muhammad is the general counsel for the Nation of Islam. We want to hear from her. The year before, we had uh, Vernon Mason, because we couldn't get all Maddox out of New York. So we got Vernon Mason. My point, 
because this went to Toronto Brawley and it was, we want to hear from the community on the community. The social structure was ballistic, but my point is on the way to critiquing patriarchy, you should pause and ask the women, oh, unless you assume those women are stupid or naive. Okay, so what then assumptions are you making about women that you got to speak for them? They've been in the nation their whole damn life. But I just remember that in terms of that. So, but when we start thinking about what's going on in Costa Rica at the time, and we start thinking about uh, what, who's down there, who this young sister represents with her fist in the air last week. I started looking it up and I said, you know, this is interesting. And then you brought her up and you started asking, you said, you know, this, let's talk about this social structure, governance structure thing for a minute. And I said, you know, we're gonna be having this conversation on the last day of July Shout out one more time to Julius and Augustus Caesar for wrecking the calendar because y'all wanted y'all names in it. That's why they're 31 days instead of 30. But you know, Europeans got to do what Europeans do. So, but we're going into the month of August, which is when Amy Ashwood Garvey and Marcus Garvey start the University Negro Improvement Association. And as a 23 year old in 1910, young Marcus Garvey left Jamaica, born in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica, well, before, before I get to that, let me go to something that dropped this week. Three, uh, today's the 31st, so five days ago. This was in the Jamaica Gleaner out of Kingston. The Minister of Culture, Gender, Entertainment, and Sport, Olivia Grange, made an announcement. They just pledged to assist Costa Rica with a plan by the Costa Rican government to elevate the image and philosophy of the Jamaican national hero, Marcus Mosea Garvey in Costa Rica. They announced it in the Gleaner. She made, she made that announcement earlier in the month on the 50th anniversary commemoration of diplomatic relations between Jamaica and Costa Rica. Cause she said, we're gonna help y'all celebrate Marcus Garvey because in 2022, is the 60th anniversary of Jamaica's national independence, the 135th anniversary of the birth of Marcus Garvey. And then I said, okay, so let me go and pull some of my books on this because I know it's a story here to be told. And what did I find? Come on. <laughs> this, uh, there are right now, hold on, let me see. I have the last three here. There are at last count, there are 13 volumes of the Marcus Garvey papers. I have all 13, these are the last three. Volume 11 is the first volume of two on the Caribbean diaspora. So the Garvey papers edited over decades, the great Robert Hill, who was a very young man when this book came out by uh, John Henry Clark, Marcus Garvey and the Vision of Africa, the great Jegna, John Henry Clark, who edited this book with the assistance of Amy Jakes Garvey, who wrote a book before that called Garvey and Garveyism that came out originally in 1963. This is Garvey and Garveyism. Amy Jakes Garvey was the second wife of Marcus Garvey. I'll, I'll, I'll just mention this and keep going very quickly because Dr. Clark used to say, when I talked to Amy Jakes Garvey, some of the things she said about the first Ms. Garvey, if I tried to write them down, the paper would burn and burst into flames. So therefore I can't, but you could understand it, some of you all know this story in, in, in detail, but I'm not going to say, you know, I'm just going to mention this. Once they started the UNIA in Jamaica, and then eventually, of course, leave the uh, Jamaica and come to the United States, and the thing just grows and explodes, and Costa Rica has a very big role in that. Amy Ashwood Garvey is like, my husband needs some help. 
So she recruits one of her friends to become his personal secretary. Uh, that lady's name was also Amy, Amy Jakes Garvey. <laughs> so the second Miss Garvey came because the first Miss Garvey was like, you need some help. So anyway, we'll just leave that go. But both of them, I'm not talking about Marcus and Amy. I'm talking about Amy and Amy, or as, as my man Tony Martin used to call them, the two Amys, because he wrote a biography of Amy Jakes Garvey, Marcus Garvey. I understand a couple of scholars working on a new biography. And as scholars trained in the social structure, regardless if they're Black, white, or poker, that often do. They often slam the earlier work. And I find that a lot of recent scholarship is very good in terms of use of archives and uh, the interpretation in those uh, books, those recent, more recent books weighed down by social structure genealogies, intellectual genealogies, is often so very nearly worthless that the best thing about the newer books is the sources. So, oh, you found some more, okay, good. But if y'all gonna sit here and try to puzzle your way through this intellectual pretzel logic they're trying to push in, so these publishers will give them these university press contracts, that's all social structure. So we're gonna, I'm gonna, as I'm reading, I'm reducing the analysis to music. Because I'm really not interested in you. So I would prefer, because once Amy Jakes Garvey wrote this, by the way, Amy Jakes Garvey, of course, is the father of their children, uh, Marcus, who recently made transition, and Julius, still alive, medical doctor in New York. Um, you know, I know Julius Garvey. In fact, we're working with Julius Garvey trying to get his daddy a pardon, right? Uh, Justin Hansford, one of my former students who now runs the Third Marshall Center at Howard University, brilliant lawyer, young brother. He and his people at the center really, you know, they're still on that. But this is the mother of, of, of the two boys. Uh, they both kept it alive. Lionel Yard wrote a biography of Amy Ashwood Garvey. Um, as I said, Tony Martin wrote one. I understand there's some more being written. But Amy Jakes Garvey wrote the history of the Garvey movement, what they call it, what we call the Garvey movement, the UNA. And then using her own money and money she could raise, she sent a copy of Garvey and Garveyism to every HBCU. So put this in your library. <laughs> this is a, so, when, so even though all the scholars have written better books, were you there? No. Okay, then I'm gonna read Garvey and Garveyism and your book, but I'm not gonna throw away Garvey and Garveyism because you didn't decide it, that you got a better analysis. I'm gonna go with the sister who was there, but I'm raising all that to say. And then in here, she was Henry Clark. She actually is in here. And the brother, one of the young brothers who helps with this book, Dr. Clark's book, which is an anthology with a number of pieces in it, one of the young brothers is Robert Hill, Bobby Hill, who is the editor now of the Marcus Garvey. He's an elder now. <laughs> and so all these papers, Hill is the guy. But I raise all that to say that in this book, Marcus Garvey and the Vision of Africa, they include a primary document. Marcus Garvey tells the story of his trip in 1910. And that's where I'm going. All of this is sparked by you bringing up Lucy Alvarado. We're going to tie all this together, right? Marcus Garvey goes to Limon, Costa Rica. 1910. Why? He's going to get a job. What's his job? In fact, I had my finger on the pages. Oh, oh, oh. He's going to get a job working as a timekeeper. Well, what kind of people got to keep time in Limon? What, they, what, what do you think the industry was in Limon in Costa Rica in 1910, Professor Hunter? I have no idea. Um, you can imagine. Timekeeper. The industry? Yeah, there's definitely industry. But it's don't be like coffee or something. It's got to be something. There you go. Agricultural? Okay. It's agriculture. It's agriculture, except 
Hold on for a second. It's on uh, Costa Rica is CMXXI. I want to make sure I get this because I want everybody to hear this. Ah, here we go. Because in, 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 this, in, this, um, in this volume, what they do is go country by country where the UNIA had divisions. Mm. So I'm going past Brazil. I'm going past Belize. This is the largest organization in the history of Black people in terms of international organization. And I'm going to get here now to- Can you pause for a second? Because I just I want to understand what was the mission, right? So as, as we, because again, institution building is everything. Yes. For us. What, yes. what did, you know, Ms. Amy and Mr. Marcus set out to do? And then why go internationally? Why not to stay in Jamaica with it? Very good. Very good. Very good. First conceptual category of our six, social structure, who are Africans to other people. Second category, governance structure, who are we to each other? The reason the first is first, so we can turn down the noise. Their objective is to unify black people around the world. It's a very broad objective. Some people might think it's impossible, but in order to unify black people around the world, you've got to first have them understand they have a relationship with black people around the world. You can't do that locally. That's why you don't start with governance first. Because if you start with governance first, people will see themselves as, I'm from the south side of Chicago. I'm from the west side. Okay, well, south side, I'm from this block. I'm from this street. Now you're starting to focus on these separate things and you ground there. Instead of saying, you know when they, people from Chicago claim they from Chicago? When they move to Detroit or I'll go to school. Now they're all from Chicago until you get them all only Chicagoans. And then where'd you go to high school? Where your block? In the, the tendency is to go local, is to go governance, family, community, block. The social structure is the largest thing. So the Garvey's approach is we will go to these various places and expose people there to our larger vision of how they connect. In other words, we got, but so the, the challenge with the social structure category as we developed it was to deal with this question of anti-imperialism because empire is the reason they're in these places in the first place at the same time as we're dealing with the domestic issues. So you've got to separate social from governance because people confuse the two. And then that's what has them run out there and like Charles Bartley did when the dream team played Angola and they wifey said, yeah, I'm out here with USA on my chest. Okay, boy, you from Leeds, Alabama. And you put that USA on your chest. And you think when you say USA, them hillbillies in Alabama, yeah, they love you as long as you the round mound of rebound at Auburn. But y'all go, y'all go look up at the statistics of number of black people who go to Auburn and the University of Alabama right now and compare it to that same number 30, 40 years ago after Bear Bryant and them decided at their Sam Bam Cunningham, Randall Cunningham's older brother ran over their asses at USC and went down Tuscaloosa and beat them. And then that's when the SEC said, we need some of these Negroes on our teams. Most of the black people at Alabama play a sport or are damn near valedictorians. The rest of them don't go to Alabama. The number of people in Alabama and Auburn in terms of students and the student body and the faculty is lower now than it was in the seventies and eighties. But Charles Bartley, from Alabama, went to Auburn, wearing USA on his chest, is confused because he, he, in his mind, he don't separate out social structure and governance structure until he's treated unmistakably like a black, at which point it falls out his mouth accidentally. And we say, see, this is what a life of confusion can lead to. So I must agree with Brother Barkley though. He said, I'm not a role model, I would agree. So what the Garveys are trying to do is help us understand we're all different, but we share some things. And if we come together on the things we share, 
we can enhance all of our lives collectively. So that's their objective. Now, when Marcus goes to Costa Rica in 1910, it's in his mind, but it hasn't bubbled out yet. Costa Rica is where he glimpses what the hell is going on. Except he's, except he's not in Luciano Alvarado. He's not in Lucy Alvarado's hometown. That, if, if we had a map of Costa Rica, think, think of a rectangle. It's not a rectangle. Think in the so-called West is the Pacific Ocean. Think in the East, that's the Atlantic Ocean. So you got Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula. You got Mexico, then you got Costa Rica, then you got Panama. Panama is where you have the narrowest land strip separating the Pacific and the Atlantic, which is why the imperialists dig the canal there. And when Garvey travels, he eventually gets to Panama. But he starts in Costa Rica because he takes a job at a timekeeper on, you're right, Professor Hunter, it's agricultural, a plantation, but they're not growing sugar. They're not growing tobacco. They're growing bananas. Because Costa Rica is the home of the world's first modern disaster capitalism international corporation, the United Fruit Company. And that's who Marcus Garvey is working for in Costa Rica. So when, when y'all hear the phrase banana republic. <laughs> I'm Mr. Tally man, tally me banana. Oh, we're gonna, oh look, look, watch this. You better do it. We're gonna get to Harry. This okay. is the songbook. This is the original songbook with illustrations from, wait for it, narrative folk, Charles White. We're going to get to him in a minute. So, oh, yeah, it's crazy how the ancestors work. You open this door. That's right. Come, Mr. Tally, my Tally, me banana. Daylight come and I won't go home. They at night, except this time, this is post World War I. World War II, when the banana market collapses in Costa Rica, and, and the UFC basically takes over the government, and they, by then they have replicated that model in the Caribbean. So Belafonte's people growing bananas, his mama's people, are growing bananas in the Caribbean because they have shifted some of that over there. But they start in Central America. In fact, those of you who want to read more about it, there are a number of good books on it. I mean, uh, the little book by Peter Chapman, Bananas, How the United Fruit Company Changed the World. Uh, there are a number of books called Banana Wars. Uh, Lester Langley wrote one back in the 80s called Banana Wars, which is very important. Uh, Steve Schiffler and Mark Mulberg did one in the last 15 years called Banana Wars because bananas were the world modern imperialism's first fast food. This is before okay, processing. So it was not a clothing, uh, yeah. not a clothing <laughs> outlet. You see that? You see how they do? They put it in your face, but we turn in the music. Yeah, Banana Republic. Because the Banana Republic is what these empire builders, Josh Bolton in uh, the room where it happened, where he lays out how they tried to destroy the Venezuelan thing this last time. Right now in the White House, somebody even said Banana Republic, trying to refer to Cuba, Woody Allen, making movies where he pretended to be Fidel Castro, Banana Republic. No, United Fruit Company empire, United Fruit Company. And so Garvey, this is, this is the section called Costa Rica. <laughs> he goes through, in fact, uh, shout out to branch number 300 of the Universal Improvement, Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. That branch 300 is the branch still to this day in Limon, Costa Rica. People say the UNIA, in fact, uh, there was a book by Stephen Hahn that won all the awards. I think the National Book Award, and I said, Stephen Hahn, it's a very good book, but again, the analysis, very nearly worthless. I'm looking at the sources. Hahn starts the book, Stephen Hahn, very respected historian, brilliant guy, very important scholarship. 
he says, I was in Philadelphia and I heard that there was a meeting of the UNIA at the African-American Museum, I wanna say it is, because Liberty Hall is still in North Philly. Shout out to the Africans of North Philly because the UNIA branch is still there. Han says, and I'm going from memory here, it's been many years since the book came out and I read it. He said, uh, I heard there was a meeting of the UNIA and I'm working on Garvey. I said, oh, I gotta go. He said, when I got there, I realized it wasn't a conference on the UNIA because this is how academics think of these things. These academics writing books about these black movements aren't in the black movements. I look at them almost like those little white birds that ride on elephants' backs and eat whatever fall on the elephant. In other words, you making your living off of something you're not even in. You just kind of, you know, I won't quite call them parasites because I don't think they have malicious intent, but they ain't like fighting. They want to write about the fighting, right? So he says, I got in the room and I realized, oh, this isn't a conference. This is actually a UNIA meeting. And at that moment, I realized the UNIA was still an organization. I just kind of chuckled when I read it, when I thought to myself, if you were in Philly and didn't know the UNIA is still an organization, that means you ain't got no contacts with the governance structure, which most scholars don't. They in the social structure. <laughs> Black, white, or polka dot. Again, those of you listening to this bristling, just show me where I'm wrong. It's no problem. Anyway, so the point is we should have a conversation, but we're going to have it in the governance structure. What we're not going to do is co-mingle them two categories and we're going to be on some. I've seen that happen. And any of us who have ever been in an academic conference where the governance structure and the social structure touched each other on a very sensitive Black topic and the people got scared, know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I, I should just I, I should mention this. This is a very I'm, I'm gonna keep this story very quick. I was in Philly one time at a conference, University of Pennsylvania, and it was a Du Bois conference. And the conversation got, got talking about Du Bois and how he had disdain for the lower class when he was writing Philadelphia Negro. And this guy was making a point. He thought he was being very eloquent. And another guy who I won't name, friend of mine, in fact, who is a Du Bois scholar, but also from North Philly. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. He 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 got he 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 got up to speak and he said, before I say something, I'm gonna respond, to Professor So and So. He said, uh, when, you, when you described how Du Bois, he said, I'm from North Philly. When he said, I'm from North Philly, a chill just sitting in the room went, oh, shit. Because if you <laughs> feel that, you know, when, that's, when, when you lead with, I'm from North Philly, that's a governance structure. He about to roast this white dude <laughs> for being out of pocket about some shit he done said about black people in North Philly. Even though the Philadelphia Negroes based in South Philly, that ain't the point. I'll leave it at that because the guy started turning red and I'm sitting there laughing like, what you think he just gonna ball up his fist and hit you? Nah, what he's doing is checking you by letting you know you straight off into something you don't know what you're talking about. But y'all get real comfortable when you mix up the governance and the social structure. Some of y'all been caught out there and wondered if you should have said something. That's another reason I picked to work at an HBCU first and had to be rejected by a white school to come to a black one. But anyway, the point is this. So in Costa Rica, <laughs> no, I'm just saying, because I agree, you get tired of it. You get tired of it. And you know, I didn't, you know, I get tired of, you know, the governance structure is not heaven. It's just the place where we can do our most effective work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because can't nobody hurt you like the person who is the most intimate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that's also the person that can lead you to the biggest revelations. And this is what the Garvey's understood. So Garvey is there. And I won't go into the history of United Fruit Company. I will mention, though, he says, by the time that Marcus Garvey, in fact, this is not Bobby Hill. This is uh, Ronald Harpel who writes this article because he's got all these scholars. By the time that Marcus Garvey arrived in Limon, the company was exporting about 10 million stems a year. Costa Rica had become the world's most important exporter of bananas and West Indians had become the largest ethnic minority in the, in the country. The largest group 
of non-indigenous Costa Ricans in Costa Rica to this day are Jamaicans. That's why the Jamaican minister said, we're going to extend this Marcus Garvey thing because y'all still have an active Garvey Hall, but it's in Limon. It's not where Lucy Alvarado is, that's central Costa Rica and it's not on the Pacific coast because the UFC used, tried to exacerbate tensions between the Africans from the Caribbean coming to work there, pulled into that system and the indigenous people and they used the black people there to use them to move against organized labor and they moved their entire operation from the East coast on the, on the Atlantic to the West coast on the Pacific trying to keep tensions up between black and indigenous Costa Ricans, even though the black Costa Ricans by that time were born in Costa Rica. And one of the reasons Garvey and them had a huge chapter in Limon is because they could tap into that pan-African spirit. But anyway, let me go very quickly because I, I wanna tell y'all something a little bit more about this thing with the UFC. And uh, he says, let me see if I can find this, it's, it's so crazy. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. Oh. The death toll on the railway that they built there to get this get these bananas out ultimately was so high that there is a popular saying in Costa Rica that there is one West Indian buried under every railroad tie. Scholars estimate at least 5,000 deaths occurred during the laying of the first 40 kilometers of track from Limon to the interior. Although the misery endured by the workers had not been documented fully, by all accounts, life was not easy in the lowland jungle. It goes on. This was basically slavery wage slavery and then they worked this shit out of them to build a railroad uf the united food company comes from a guy who was paid to build a railroad from the highlands in costa rica to the atlantic ocean to ship out other materials but what he figured out quickly was well i can if i if i get in here and start growing this fruit you can grow fruit in the lowlands and as i'm as we, i'm got these people out here building the railroad i can ship the fruit out Bananas, there wasn't a banana crop in Costa Rica. This guy started building the railroad. Uh, let me see, his name is Minor Cooper Keith. He got there in 1871. He then began and then got a 99 year land lease to 800,000 acres of land, a complete tax exemption on banana exports and ownership of the railroad itself. As he says, thus the foundations for United Fruit Company were laid. If you don't understand United Fruit Company, you don't understand Latin American politics. It's the multinational that runs, that picks the prime ministers, that starts the revolutions that, that led to the coup in Guatemala and Honduras, all the way up through the Reagan administration. To this day, that is the, the UFC sets the roadmap. So Garvey, he comes in to work with as a timekeeper. He only lasts a year. Shortly after his arrival in 1910, Garvey became editor of a local paper called The Nation. The Nation. Let's go to our fourth conceptual category. Social structure, governance structure, ways of knowing what ways of looking at the world that Africans create. By the way, Pan-Africanism, the notion we share something, Amy Ashwood and Marcus Garvey and Amy Jakes Garvey, that would fit in category three, ways of knowing, Pan-Africanism. That's a concept. The fourth category is science and technology. So what tools that people use to, black people use to advance their interests? Newspapers is a form of technology. Just like this is a form of technology. Garvey, who apprenticed with a published with a printer in Jamaica as a little boy, whose father was a well-read, self-taught guy, Garvey wanted to get into publishing. He gets to Costa Rica working as a timekeeper under UFC. He then starts as editor of a newspaper called The Nation. 
throughout his stay, Garvey used the paper to attack what he saw as injustices committed against West Indians and to criticize the community's acquiescent leadership. He's now criticizing the bougie cats in Costa Rica who are Negroes who got a little money and he's using this black newspaper to do it. The Costa Rican government and UFC, this, we gotta get this guy out the paint. Who they used to do it? Some of the Afro Costa Ricans, think about the people who, this guy's not respectable. He ain't, at first they thought he was a joke, but he was too damn on top of, guy's 23 years old. They put him out. Now what happens crazily is 10 years later, that would mean 110 years to this year, he comes back. He comes back, he gives a famous speech. Let me see if I can find the, the date. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't. It was 10 years later, so it wasn't 1911. It was in Limon in 1921. This is the 100th anniversary of it, actually. Garvey, by 1921, they've started the UNIA, and guess where it took off? Everywhere. They had chapters in Africa, in colonial Africa. They caught you in a Negro world. I mean, it's all kind of scholarship on this. It's crazy. Central America, the Caribbean, most of the chapters in the United States were in the South, Louisiana. Texas, Alabama, the UNIA. My uh, very good friend, uh, former student as an undergrad, but her first book, Claudrina Harold, who's the chair of the history department at the University of Virginia, brilliant young sister, wrote her first book on the Garvey movement in the South. <laughs> it's very important. Uh, one, of, one of the narrative supporters, Keen Pillar narrative supporters, Garrick Faria, wrote about the Garvey. He's in Texas now, from Louisiana. That's where Queen Mother Audley Moore was. In fact, she tells a story about stopping the police one night when she pulled out her little gun out her pocketbook, got on the chair and told the police stay outside. And Marcus Garvey says, speak, Garvey, speak. And Garvey's down there. That's where they, when they deported him, they put him on a ship there, right there in Louisiana. And Miss Charles used to tell the story. So I was a little girl, but I remember them singing, God bless our president. We was waving white handkerchiefs. And he said, I'll be back. That all happened in the South. But the biggest chapter in Central America or so-called Middle America, which is what he uses the term, Limon, Costa Rica. Garvey comes back in 21. And what happens? Watch this. The best and most controversial example of the UNA and Marcus Garvey's pragmatism was his visit to Limon in 1921. Although Garvey was essentially run out of town by the company and the local West Indian elite in 1911, he returned a decade later in triumph. Watch this. Marcus Garvey, it is said, it is estimated that the Garvey movement raised in the few, just a few days he was there, $50,000. It's 1921. And these are laborers making a few dollars a month. <laughs> How did you raise $50,000? Watch this, y'all. This is a classic example of governance and social structure. A few days before his arrival, the United Fruit Company discovered a conflict between the company's shipping schedule and Marcus Garvey's planned visit. Bananas and banana boats do not wait. Parenthetically, when Garvey and them had the, uh, the, the ships, we talk about the Black Star Line, a couple of those ships, they spent a lot of money on to make them seaworthy. And their thing was, we're gonna get into this fruit shipping business. So they sent ships to the Caribbean to get fruit, to bring it back to the United States. Uh, I'll tell you who tells this story, great. Uh, Hugh Malzak, who was the captain of one of the ships, the Booker T. Washington. I never met Captain Malzak, but I knew his daughter well. His daughter was Una Malzak, who ran Liberation Bookstore. In fact, my first copy of her father's biography 
a star to steer by. She put in my hand right there on Malcolm X Avenue. And she was standing there and tell that story. She said, and you read it. This is what Mozak writes, Captain Mozak. He said, we would load up the fruit and then we ready to go back and we would get a cable from New York. Wait, why? Black people in the Caribbean were not used to seeing a black captain and a black crew on a black boat doing black business. And they would bring their children. They would bring the elders down to the dock to see these black men loading. The and he said, one of the reasons y'all say Marcus Garvey was not good at business was by the time we got back to New York, the fruit was rotten. But the reason it was rotten was Garvey wouldn't let us leave the port because it was more important for these black people to see black people running this huge business than it was even for us to sell this fruit. So when the scholars say, oh, he's not a, he didn't have business acumen, you, I'm going to turn down the Muzak in your analysis, your social structure analysis, because Garvey was more interested in that moment in the governance structure. You don't know how many prime ministers. You don't know how many members of parliament, you don't know how many business people, you don't know how many uh, musicians and painters were children brought down to the dock and saw those black men and was like, I'm inspired. You can't, y'all always want to reduce this to business. And then you said, Margaret Garvey was not a good businessman. Why are you assuming that was the objective? Read what Hugh Mozak said. That's, yes, that was an objective. It wasn't the only objective. Anyway, back to the thing, that was a footnote. So Garvey is here to speak, the UFC, Banana boats do not wait. That's what made me think about it. Therefore, the fruit company negotiated a deal with the UNIA that saw Garvey delay his campaign in Limon by a few days. Wait a minute, what did y'all do? Since Garvey was already on his way to Costa Rica, the United Fruit Company arranged for him to take an all expense paid to, hmm, where is Luciana Alvarado from? San Jose. <laughs> Garvey, the UFC said, hey man, look, if you come and speak, all of our people gonna come see you and the boats is gonna be jammed up. So could you, Garvey agrees to come and what happens in exchange? Oh, I'm sorry, when he's in San Jose, he meets with the general manager of the United Fruit Company and the president of Costa Rica, who basically is an employee of United Fruit Company, Banana Republic, remember. In exchange, the United Fruit Company arranged for a special payday for its workers and free transportation to hear Garvey speak. The company then provided Garvey with a boat to get him to his next engagement in Boca del Toro, another United Fruit Company town, and also facilitated his efforts to attract a paying crowd while he was there. These white boys said, we can't stop Garvey. You can only hope to contain him. <laughs> so when you say he raised $50,000, how much of that was a check? The United Fruit Company said, look, man, don't jam our bananas up. <laughs> But Garvey then, and the speech is in here. Garvey then comes, gives the speech, railing against imperialism and saying, we got to do for ourselves. And guess what? Who paid for it? The damn United Fruit Company. You can't make this up. I'm just thinking about this in the context of a girl from the town where they made the deal with her fist in the air in 2021, halfway around the world. And when Luciana Alvarado said, and here's the quote I love that she said, this young sister said, they asked her, well, what does that symbolize? She said, this is what it symbolizes. She said, yes, you are one of mine. You understand things. <laughs> when she said, in other words, that is a governance structure quote if I've ever heard, yes. You see this? And the people say, yeah, yes, you're one of mine. 
you understand things. <laughs> In other words, Y'all gonna argue about this. You don't know what this is. It, kneeling was good when you thought we was in Texas praying before a football game. But then Colin goes on a knee and you say, get up off your knee. I thought y'all wanted us on the knee. I thought God, white Jesus. Oh, it's, it's not white Jesus. I'm sorry. So, all right. Now, let me, let me fast forward. Because the Garvey movement then becomes huge in Costa Rica until the banana market begins to collapse. United Fruit Company moves from the east to the west coast to ship its stuff, uses tension. They try to exacerbate tension between the black and indigenous people and the black elite in Costa Rica start eating their own. It limps along, but then here's where we make our transfer. Now, because this largest context, and this is where we're kind of connect the two pieces of what we want to cover today. When we ask about the relationship of the social structure to the government structure, and we understand that the social structure comes first because we're trying to, 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 to reduce the noise so that we can think and have a governance conversation. And part of reducing the noise is helping us understand where we are so that we no longer allow that to drive us. And in the Garvey movement, part of their objective was to expose people to how empire works, which is why when Garvey leaves Costa Rica and travels to Panama, other places, comes back to Jamaica by 1914, they're sitting talking. He said, you know, I mean, everywhere I went, Black people were at the bottom because he's there at damn near the birth of multinational corporations. And he says, this is how they keep people divided. They're dividing by race, we're at the bottom, the indigenous people working side by side. Then they try to turn the indigenous people against the black people from the Caribbean, from the islands, because they speak English to this day in Limon, they speak English. And then they, but they all speak Spanish. And if you want to be in this society, you got to learn Spanish. They keep it. But meanwhile, UFC count money, count money. So Garvey is understanding how these systems work. And so when they start the UNA, now people say, well, they were black capitalists. They absolutely were because they were trying to play in the system that they were in. And that made them in the governance structure, they had debates with the black socialists. But then black socialists, A. Philip Randolph and them, even Du Bois and them, start, they get caught up in the, in the social structure too because they are some of the loud voices in the Garvey Must Go campaign when Garvey comes to the United States. And again, those tensions, Caribbean, you know, African US, well, what are y'all doing? You're letting the social structure dictate the terms. This is a common thing, which is why we had to separate social and governance so that we could turn that noise down on social structure and say, what, okay, we understand we all live in a capitalist society, but how do it free us? We got to have a conversation. How can we change the social structure? But we can't change it by you coming in here and just giving our people a message of save your money. We can hold on, hold on. Which wait, I don't know. That might be right or not. But you wait. Could you just turn the noise down? And so that's what made me think. And for those of you who are narrative subscribers, you know, I look forward to all of our conversations, Professor Hunter. I'm really looking forward to when we unveil this Robert Moses, this Bob Moses. Robert Paris Moses conversation. Bob Moses, who made transition last week, uh, a week ago uh, this weekend. So he was near transition to ancestors today, uh, last week, seven days ago. Robert Paris Moses, and won't we'll get into his biography. Uh, I'll mention this by way of point of entry. Another of the scholars uh, in the social structure, Taylor Branch, who you know won all these awards for his three volume history of the civil rights era, parting the waters, you know, like pillar of fire. Um, two of the three. He says, Bob Moses was every bit as important 
to the so-called civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s as Martin Luther King. And we don't know his name because of how he moved through the world. I would agree with that without argument. If you're gonna use that, if you're gonna use quote unquote great man, great woman history. and me, But one of the reasons we don't know about Moses' name is because he rejected great man, great woman history. He was from New York, his father worked at the 369th Armory, the Harlem Hellfighters Armory. He grew up in Harlem. He knew Bayard Rustin. He was working for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as a young man, he went to Stuyvesant High School, brilliant student, Hamilton College, studying math. I mean, the guy was, you know what I'm saying? But he's working with SCLC. He heard Dr. King speak. No, he heard Y.T. Walker speak, because SCLC, they're running SCLC out of New York, part, or have an office in New York. He, he approaches Y.T. Walker, talks to Y.T. Walker, talks to uh, Bayard Rustin. And again, we're gonna unpack all this in narrative. So I'm just giving this as a bit of a background to one piece from him I'm gonna mention. And then his boy, which we really, is still around, my man, Charlie Cobb. It's a whole nother conversation. But again, narratives, we're gonna really get into this. Long story short, he asks Bayard Rustin, I wanna see Ella Baker, I wanna meet Ella Baker. Ella Baker, of course, worked in New York for many years. We've talked about Ella Baker. She was the executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Bayard Rustin sends Bob Moses to meet Ella Baker. He goes south to meet Ella Baker. Ella Baker sends him to Mississippi in 1960 where he meets a brother named Amzie Moore and Bob Moses' life changes forever after that. Because young Amzie Moore, an elder there in Mississippi, and we talked about TRM Howard, we'll talk about C.C. Driver and narrative, all these women and men of Mississippi is what showed Bob Moses, as Ella Baker would say, the job of an organizer is to put themselves out of a job. In other words, my job is not to come in the community and tell y'all what y'all need. My job is to come and say, here are my skills. How, what do y'all want? Let's figure out how we can organize and get stuff together. And then I'm out. Why? Because that's, I'm not, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the know-it-all and I'm not even from here. Again, governance, how do we relate to one another? By the time Bob Moses makes transition last week, he is remembered. And there are a number of very good books on Bob Moses. And I'm not even going to show y'all. If I don't see the one that I'm thinking of right now, I won't even show it to you. You got to come to narrative for that. Because we're going to talk about Bob Moses. Extent. He, he and Gloria Richardson, another person we're going to talk about, are so important. That's why another reason you had to come to narrative, because those conversations then spark our community conversations, which then spark the way to do this work and connect this work. This is just the front porch. Bob Moses by 1961, comes back to Mississippi. And from 61 to 65, that is the period when the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, of which Bob Moses joins, convened this 1964 Freedom Summer, Freedom Schools, all the stuff that's going on there. These young people facing death around voter registration, around community building and empowerment. And then at the end of that arc, Bob Moses says, you know, they saying my name too much. They really are, and you know, I don't, this isn't about me. Bob Moses resigns from SNCC. Then they try, the government tries to draft Bob Moses. He was 25 when he went down there in 1960. He was already past draft age when the Vietnam War jumped out and they tried to draft him anyway. He and his then wife, Janet, the wife to the end of his life, uh, his, his immediately pre previous wife, his first wife was on my dissertation committee. Most people don't know her as Donna Moses. They know her as Marimba Ani. <laughs> but anyway, that's a whole another story for us. And come to narrative for that story. We talk about that. Because that is one of the most formidable intellectuals. Remember, I showed y'all her book, Urugu, which I keep right here. One of her books. But this is the masterwork, which started life as her dissertation at the new school there in, uh, in New York, Urugu, an African-centered critique 
of uh, European cultural thought and behavior. That book, I know y'all like reading how to be an anti-racist and all that, but you should probably start with it. Anyway, the point is that, yeah, she was part of that crew. They go to Africa. Remember John Lewis meets Malcolm X in East Africa. They go, they did Fan Lou Hamer is over there in Africa. Bob Moses moves to Africa. Bob Janet moved, Moses moved to Africa and Tanzania where they live. They start teaching school. He eventually is in the Tanzania government helping uh, create, design the Tanzania education program. He comes back to the United States after James Earl Carter in 1976 gives blanket amnesty to anybody who left the country because of the Vietnam War, even though Moses was too old to be drafted. Comes back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, their daughter Maisha is in middle school. He realizes they're not teaching her algebra. He asked the teacher, and this is the thing, if you haven't, and I knew, you know, I didn't know him well, but I knew Bob Moses for several reasons that become clear in a second. Again, narrative is the conference where we had a real conversation. Bob Moses was very quiet. And I watched Bob Moses every time the SNCC veterans would come together. Because remember, they, they, were, they were young people together and now they're elders together. They, they, have a they are a tighter band. If you, you see the SNCC people, you understand how they were able to survive what they did. Bob Moses come in the room, the energy change. I saw him at Marion Berry's uh, funeral ritual over the Civil War Museum. I've, in fact, the last time I saw Bob Moses was right before COVID, they came to DC here to plan the SNCC 60th, 60th anniversary. And uh, you know, we were all part of the planning. Myself, a couple of people, we were there. And so, you know, I know these folk now. I'm like, wow, this is and Bob Moses. So quiet. Now, you know, you, Professor Hunter, can get animated. I certainly can get animated all the time, right? Except, you know, cat like that come around, you, you feel bad for talking. You're like, uh, so Brother Moses, what do you think? Or one of his comrades, Bob, so what do you think Bob, Bob Moses had been sitting there the whole time like this? Well, you see, The challenge we have, right? How do we get these people to voice what's in their mind? And then you're not gonna rush Bob Moses. In fact, most of the time you're not gonna talk. The way they talk about Bob Moses, Bob Moses himself in later quotations would say, I didn't even recognize that guy. <laughs> I mean, but it was like this guy because they said he was fearless, he was brilliant, you know, all this kind of thing. Okay, fine. Now, while they're in Tanzania, oh, oh, I should mention this and I'm gonna keep going. Y'all gotta come to narrative, I promise you, because I dug out all my Bob Moses stuff, including his 2002 book he wrote with his friend Charlie Cobb called Radical Equations, because after he was teaching his daughter and a few other students in that class algebra, he said, ding. Algebra is the way they're going to lock our people out of the 21st century. The right to vote, they tried to say, was reading and writing. So we did the literacy test, even as we were smashing Jim Crow and all that. But the gateway to the 21st century is technology literacy. And technological literacy is based on numeracy, learning these numbers. And the number gateway is algebra. So he started asking, how many of y'all offer algebra classes in middle school? No. Oh, the black kids can't get algebra? No problem. 1982, Robert Moses started something called the Algebra Project. Mm. Now look that up. <laughs> Bob Moses said, the lesson I learned in the civil rights movement is that we have to work collectively and this is the way they're going to keep our people out of the future. Bob Moses starts the Algebra Project. 
He is children and start the young people's project. And you, if you if you were in the algebra project, y'all know what I'm talking about. If you're looking it up now, your whole mind is about to be blown. And for the rest of his life, that algebra project came to center. In 2002, he, him and his comrade, Charlie Cobb, who was actually the guy who wrote the proposal for Freedom Schools in December 1963, my friend Charles Cobb, brilliant brother, they wrote, uh, they wrote a book called Radical Equations. The first half of the book is the history of their student movement. The second half is the algebra project. And in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, it was the third book that we picked. When I say we, I mean, I was like, we should read this. And they was like, okay, they all read it. And then we discussed, we all voted. Okay, we're going to pick this. And we asked Bob Moses to come to Philadelphia and spend time with our teenagers. We had 200 some students reading the book and then a thousand or so high, uh, elementary school students around the, the city in the Freedom School classrooms. Bob Moses sent word back, I would love to, but you know, I'm still in class. Bob Moses was teaching high school algebra in Mississippi. Oh, by the way, I should mention, while he was asking about his daughter's class, Maisha's class, Bob Moses was finishing his PhD in the philosophy of mathematics at Harvard University. Remember, Bob Moses is a mathematician. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like, Professor Hunter, I feel like every one of the we that you should knows that we do are about people who couldn't possibly exist. And if they do, how in the hell did I not know? Now you know why we had to split social structure from governance structure, because they freeze Bob Moses in Mississippi if you know him at all. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I hope it's enough of a tease for folk now. If you're not in narrative, you got to sign up because we're going to have a long conversation on Bob Moses. Anyway, Bob Moses, I can't come. I'm teaching high school. He's in Jackson, Mississippi teaching high school. He sent his mans, uh, who is now an ancestor, the great Dave Dennis who was in SNCC. Dave Dennis spent that summer, came, talked to us. And then eventually, a few years later, he and his wife, Janet, came to University of Maryland Eastern Shore where we were having freedom school training before we started that summer, Freedom Summer in Philadelphia. We're in our 22nd year now. And he came and spent time with us. And that was the first time I got a chance to really sit and listen and be in conversation with Bob Moses. Then went to the SNCC's 50th anniversary and subsequently over the years seeing him um, my dear brother, Corey Walker, who's now at Wake Forest University, when he was at Brown, he had a big thing. Him and Charlie Cobb. Charlie was a scholar in residence at Brown. They had a big conference. Bob Mosby on a panel. Anyway, pause. Enough. Narrative. I promise y'all. Woo! That, I ain't even really gotten to Bob Mosby. But Bob Mosby in 2010 contributed an article that we're going to break down in narrative on the difference between Black people being constitutional property and being constitutional people. It's in a book called Quality Education as a Constitutional Right. You see his name. Because Bob Moses said, this should be an amendment to the United States Constitution that gives everyone the right to a good education. He said, well, should you just amend the Constitution? No, impl no implied, no, no, it should be. And if you don't give a good education in this country, you're in violation of the Constitution. So he writes a whole article on the fact that Black people have never been people legally in this country. I don't care what the law says. There's a difference between, we came in the thing as constitutional property and have never really left it. Look at how, and then he just breaks it down in four stages, which we're gonna talk about extensively. But the reason I bring him up is as a bridge, it ain't even Bob Moses. His boy, remember Charlie Cobb, who helped, who, who helped co-wrote uh, Radical Equations. When Bob Moses went to Tanzania, oh no, come on son, aha. Bob Moses went to Tanzania, he wasn't the only one. Charlie Cobb went. This is the greatest magazine, in my, to my mind, published by Black people in the contemporary era. There is no close second. 
I'm a fan of Old Ebony and Jet and all the other places, all the publications, but this is by far, it's not even a close second. It's called Black World. If you don't know Black World, Negro Digest, this is the best. There's no second. You understand? There's no second. And I would, I hope, I just pulled a few of the ones I have here. I mean, I, you know, I, I try to collect them all, but let me see. I wish I could find one with, because they changed the name to Negro Digest. And but from Negro Digest to so and, and the back in the back, they got the class argument. Like, for example, you see here, it says, would he look better in a sweater and chinos with a science book under his arm or with this gun? We got and then, you know, they get, they get on the black bourgeoisie. Sorry to discomfort you, Chauncey Warrington Hildreth, the third Esquire. <laughs> in other words, in other words, you know, you Negroes and then everybody's writing in it. Harold Cruz, August Wilson publishes his first poems in it. This is a, a copy from 1966, Why I Eulogize Malcolm X by Ozzie Davis. In the Negro history issue, John Hope Franklin, Sterling Stuckey, Negro Higgles, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing being discussed today in any circle by any quote unquote black public intellectual that measures up to a fraction of the conversations that were held in this. Oh, by the way, it was published out of, uh, oh, Chicago, Johnson Publishing Company, John H. Johnson, yes. Anyway, when Hoyt Fuller took it over, he changed the thing to Black World. This is the May 1972 article by Charlie Cobb, living in Tanzania, Bob Mose moved in 69. Cobb, now, these SNCC young people went over there. Who are Black people to each other? It's called African Notebook, Views on Returning Home. So I'm thinking about this in the context of the Olympics. I'm thinking about it in the context of Garvey, whose birthday is coming up the middle of the month. I'm thinking about it in the context of Sister Alvarado. Yes, you're one of us. You understand things. Charlie Cobb is like, we moved to Africa. That's where the SNCC move went. Go look up the Atlanta project. That's when Marimba, well, Marimba, Donna Moses and them, they were all in Atlanta, Vine City, Atlanta. They said SNCC. They put all the white people out of SNCC. Something that echoes and resonates to this day. I've seen these elders in conversation about that. White people who risked their lives, Bob Zeller and them, we had that conversation, but we'll, we'll talk more about that. So Charles Moses for a time stopped speaking to white people. They went to Africa. Now, for people to say, y'all can't go to Africa and escape everything, Charlie Cobb breaks it down. This is one of, if not the most important articles for those of us who think about this notion of Pan-Africanism. If you want to understand in terms of the politics, one of the things, for example, Charlie Cobb says is the black elite are global. Meaning what? Them same Negroes that don't speak to Black people here, they got an African counterpart that don't speak the kind of Africans there. And we move there looking for Harambe and looking for Umoja and trying to speak Kiswahili, we're going to run into them. And here's the tragedy. We are going to identify most with them because this, what I'm calling, what we're calling the social structure, has trained us to see that as progress. Fast forward to 2021. We're looking to do business in Africa because we're going to make... That's the black bourgeois. In other words, if we're not in the governance structure saying, do you see how you're replicating capitalism? Charlie Cobb wrote about that in 1972. And he didn't stay over there for a week or two or a year. Him and Bob Moses spent years in Tanzania learning the language. Moses comes back, the Moses has come back in the middle of the 70s. You understand? Charlie Cobb is helping us understand that if we're going to advance as a people, we have to eviscerate this class strata. I sat, as I told you earlier in the week, I sat in um, I sat in the thing when the Tuskegee folk or the descendants of folks who were in the Tuskegee experiment, 
uh, making a national tour, the Ad Council. Um, again, our sister Deborah Draper did some promotions for it. And I'm watching them say, look, what happened with the Tuskegee experiment isn't the same as the COVID vaccine. And I'm listening to them and saying, well, all due respect, it absolutely is in terms of the reason Black people, some Black people have some hesitancy. This isn't about whether the government injected Black men with syphilis. They didn't. Historically, we know what they didn't. This is Draper help us understand it. It is about we don't trust the government. So if you try to come at this with convincing Black people by trying to shame them, by trying to somehow say, y'all just not intelligent, what they're hearing is class strata. Man, F you. I, I was sitting there. I got so, I was thinking to myself, well, shit, now I don't, now I wish I hadn't taken the vaccine. I'm getting mad. Why? Don't talk to us like we're stupid. Take a page from Cobb. Take a page from Moses. Take a page from Gloria Richardson. You enter a community and you listen. You listen. You understand? And then you ask people, what are your fears? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? Here's what I know. What do we want from this system? What do we want to get rid of in this system? What do we want to keep? What do we want to change? And that's how you do That's the Ella Baker. You don't come in saying, look, the reason y'all want to do this because y'all don't know. So let me tell y'all, immediately when you start that, anything that happens that, so let me tell y'all what. See, the Tuskegee experiment, and these people are thinking, this bougie Negro done coming here, hmm, how much that tie cost? How much them shoes cost? What's well, nice air conditioning here? So they done, how much they pay? Is it some food after this? Because that's why I came. In other words, they done tuned out whatever you're saying when you started with, the reason y'all don't want this is because, because now, oh, you're going to tell me what I think? You didn't even ask me <laughs> what I think. So with all due respect, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You gotta understand why Garvey was so effective, why Du Bois and them was mad. Because Du Bois is writing incredibly brilliant stuff. And black people in South Philly, which is what set my man's off at that conference, was like, bruh, you don't know nothing about the hood. If you think that Du Bois came through Philly with his morals and his y'all living and talked to sex workers, when you read the Philadelphia Negro, he done done a survey of people who are in things that he morally don't like. But if you think he got answers from them by talking down to them, you done misunderstood something. I'm from North Philly. Uh-oh. <laughs> so this is the same thing at work, even in this go get vaccinated stuff. You got to listen to people, even if, if even if they talking, you saying you crazy as hell. But but you got to respect. This is what Moses and then Charlie Cobb said when we went to Africa, we found all them same people. We found all them same people. But here's the difference. The only thing that was real to them when we met them was our passport. Because when I showed up at the airport, the guy assumed I was from there. So he started speaking to me in Kiswahili. He realized I didn't speak Swahili, so he switched to English, assuming I was from another part of Africa where English is the first language until I got to the thing, the passport. And he said, oh, American. And I realized in that moment that to him, I'm an American, even though I look like him. And then that is the thing that traps us. He writes that, oh, this is such a brilliant article. He says, that is the thing that traps us. In the Olympics, Everybody got on their flags, but when you say those sisters, and again, I'm not making it gendered because the brothers do it too, but again, there are ways that we move through the world in terms of ways of knowing that congeal around these gender distinctions, not differences, distinctions. You know, everybody hugs at the end of the race, but boy, when them Jamaicans start dealing out them blazing speeds 
and those Amer and those sisters with USA on them start giving out them blazing speeds and the Nigerian sisters start giving, whenever they cross the line and they all hug, that's my favorite moment. These are black women, <laughs> you understand? I know the winning, the losing, but those sisters with different colors on. Charlie Cobb said the passport is what trapped us, but in athletics, you can see when she says, you understand things. She said, you know, I know we got on different colors, but we're not trapped by these colors. You understand? We, they are genuinely happy. Yeah, I wanted to win, but you won and it's over now. Give me a hug. And then, you know, here are my children. Here's my family. Bring the children on the track. Let the little kids, come on. Meanwhile, you got rabbit USA, USA mad. Why are you hugging her? Because she's more related to that girl from Jamaica than she is to you, you maskless, vaccine-less hillbilly. And you will never understand that we never had an allegiance to the color before community. Now, if you get your mind right, we can build a different world. But if you don't get your mind right, I don't know why you think we're going to keep on putting up with this. Every day the bucket goes to the well. One day the bottom will drop out. And you see Naomi uh, Osaka, Haitian and Jamaica, I'm sorry, Haitian and Japanese with the red in her braids and the red on her suit. Why? Because the colors say Japan. Deal with it. When you see Simone Biles say, I will break my neck in here if I'm not, I'm not focused. So I'm going to pull back so we can win the silver. Y'all think I, I resigned because I, no. If I hadn't got out of there, I would be hurt and we wouldn't even have met them. So, and I'm gonna show y'all how much this thing is messing with me. I'm not even gonna go, go get all the gold medals. Cause y'all know if I'm in, I win. And then the young Asian sister from St. Paul, Minnesota. Come on, come oh, on. Wait, hold on. Hold on. From Vietnam. Come on now, Vietnam. Bang dong this, world. Pull a name up, pull a name up, Professor Hunter. What's her name? Oh, hold Angie, on, hold on. Angie Porter, you know, she's Angie Porter. Hold on, let me just Google search. My quickly. goodness. Oh, Lee, oh, and I wanted to say her name properly because I know it's Lee, uh, but her first name. Suni uh, Lee? Oh, well, Suni is, uh, is a, is a yes, short Sunisa, name. Sunisa? Sunisa Lee. Yes. So now, watch that. Now, see, Vietnam, but no. Nah, and that ain't going to claim her USA. You better look at her. As my man, uh, David Jilk, the poet once said in his poem on Africa, one of his poems, he said, Africa, my Africa, though I've never seen you, my face is full of your blood. Mm. In other words, <laughs> so when you look at her, yeah, y'all claiming America, but she's a citizen of the world. And if you don't think they wasn't going nuts in Vietnam, you don't understand how the governance structure <laughs> works in Ho Chi Minh City that y'all used to call Saigon. Yes, let's be very clear. So- No, let's just talk about the irony of that though. That, so, so we have Simone Biles, Gabby, Gabby Douglas, Simone Biles, and now this young lady whose country we destroyed, which is why her tried to, tried to, 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 right? We did, we we didn't win that, right? Okay, I forgot. When was the last time? I anyway, um, yeah. So you know, but they take my diaspora shirt that may say "Made in Vietnam." You got to ask yourself who won. But anyway, go ahead. But you know, they had to leave. They were forced to leave because of the destruction there, right? And now she's here. They lived in poverty, right? Came up out of it. And now she represented this country and won the gold medal that Simone Biles won, a child that again, you know, had a difficult background adopted by her grandparents. And then yeah. you go back to Gabby Douglas. America is on display in a way that she's gonna have to come to a reckoning about what she is, That's right. who she is, That's right? right? Who we all are to her. That's right. Because the representation right now. 
looks completely correct in my opinion. That's right. Exactly what needed to happen. That's so. right. In fact, thank you. No, thank you, Professor Hunter, because that, that that allows us to, to to get to sum this. What you what you just described is why we use we've used our weeks during the Olympics to use the Olympics as the classroom. The Olympics is a demonstration of when there are rules. We don't like all the rules. You know, Shikari should have been out there. Okay. But here's the thing. Who's the fastest? Who's the strongest? Okay. Yes. And since that's the rule, that's the rule. What I do during that, after that, you can't do nothing about it. I'm the fastest. So I made the team. Am I gonna get a gold, silver, or bronze? I don't know. I want one. But you know what's important? What's important for me is to use this moment to call these names and to say, you understand things. So let me do this. Why? You can't stop me. Why? You, you better than me? Did you win the Pan American Games? Nah. So you sit there and be mad then. You try to keep it all social media, but you can't do nothing about it. The Olympics is a window into, in many ways, who we really are as human beings. And those uniforms mean less and less and less and less. When I see the sisters that played for Stanford, who wanted to play for Nigeria, who trained with them up until the fat time USA basketball would not let uh, Chinese Ogunike and, um, and her sister play for the, okay, fine. Four years from now, maybe Joel Embiid decides he wants to play for Cameroon. You know he can, right? And maybe Bam Adebayo finally makes that trip to Nigeria and decides, go on, let me get this passport. Oh, you see, well, see y'all playing, or maybe, Giannis Antetokounmpo says, I don't want another championship. I'm going to play for Nigeria. I think I'm going to play for Nigeria in four years. And guess who's going to be mad? The people who think their flag mean more than who we mean. And so let me let me end with this, because you mentioned him a minute ago, and we should bring him in, because um, one of the reasons that we use the social structure first is that it operates wherever you are in the world. First of all, these categories apply to all human beings, but we're talking about people of African descent. So when Charlie raises this issue of class in this brilliant article, among many other things, he's really pointing to how the global social structure works to keep people divided and keep hierarchy going. That's why you can have a United Fruit Company. They don't care what color you are as long as they can exploit you and make this money. Garvey and them trying to bust it up, but to bust it up, you gotta see how your local identity, your local beingness in the world, connects to other people. And I'm not, you know, I, I've learned a great deal from scholars like Adolph Reed Jr., um, who really is heavy on class analysis. And I, I really respect and admire his work, learned a great deal from him. Some people call him a class reductionist. They'll say, well, he says, he says it isn't racist class. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, nor am I a class reductionist. However, what I will say is that we have to understand how empire works. And that's what the social structure does. So that same year, 1972, that Charlie Cobb writes this article, you also have, this was on the front cover of USA Today last Thursday. Some of y'all may know this name, Melvin McNair. Remember in 1972 when them black people hijacked that plane <laughs> and said, we going to Algeria? In fact, uh, to get up with the Black Panthers with Elders Cleaver and Kathleen Cleaver in them. In fact, if y'all want to read about it, there's a couple of books. There's one called Algiers, Capital of the uh, 
Third World, which is good. Oh man, what's the, uh, anyway, the other ones have come to my mind. Anyway, he's still living in France. He's retired now. Melvin McNair, I am at peace with what I did, right? They hijacked a whole plane. In fact, let me see, McNair, they have a whole middle part. They did the whole article on him, right? And they let all the hostages go in Miami. It was a domestic flight. They flew to Boston, they refueled, and then they went to France, which is where they still live. But what he then brings out, they got out of the country because he said, I had friends. He had some friends from Detroit who were also on the plane, killed by the police, had relatives killed by the police. They thought we had to leave America in 1972 because it was life or death. They killing us. We got to go. Cobb, Moses, they're, 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 the families, they left, these young people, after being the face of a civil rights movement, watch this social structure, y'all froze them in SNCC. They're alive to this day, but you froze them in 1964 because that's where you need them. You can't have people thinking about them leaving the country and then coming back and train. What? No, we need we need John Lewis on that bridge. We need Martin Luther King on them steps. We need Rosa Parks on that bus. We need Bob Moses and Charlie Cobb out there in overalls in Mississippi. Well, after that, no, hell no. And we say, okay, then you keep talking. We have now reduced you to Muzak. And we will have you, because clearly we can't trust y'all because you don't have any investment in us. You just want to know who we are. You want us to win an Olympic gold medal. You don't want us embracing all the other people on the track. So it was funny because in reading this and contrasting it with Charlie Cobb, I'm thinking about how class operates because these black people didn't have nothing to lose. What Charlie Cobb writes about in here is that it's very lucrative to be part of the black elite. There's a Pan-Africanism that isn't for everybody, the advancement of everybody, but you use the language of common advancement to keep yourself in front and profiting, which then leads me to how that reconciles finally, because you know what it did. Reading about United Fruit Company and reading about bananas sent me to our brother who is also still alive, the great Harry Belafonte. So you put it down. No, you Belafonte. What, what did I do with it? Oh, oh my God. You had it. You had it, you had it early. Yeah, you yeah, no, 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 no. No, I have that. I have that. Oh. But I was looking for his, oh, man, his autobiography. Because in his autobiography, he tells the story of how he got to this. His autobiography. Uh, oh, here it is. <laughs> you already know. I had it up under the <laughs> Olympic pride American prejudice. Y'all have read this. Did you interview him? I don't know, because you may have interviewed him. He is on my, you know, I have a list of legacy people, because I, when I first got to, to Sirius, my, my biggest goal was to talk to people, some elders. This is before I met you, because I knew it was important, yeah. right? It's important that we, we have those conversations. So I got to talk with Baba Dick, of course. Baba Dick Gregory. Uh, yeah, Harry Belafonte. I've been trying to get to him for seven years, and I'm, I'm suspecting that the time has probably, you know, I don't think he's doing too many interviews anymore. But. Well, you know, the ancestors got funny ways of working things out. Let's just claim that that conversation is going to happen over here. Because <laughs> we're we just going to claim that. Because, I mean, mm, he writes about coming to the United States. And we know, of course, well, Harry Belafonte, his father is from Martinique, French Caribbean, his mother from Jamaica. And they sent him to his mother's people as a little boy. Then he came back to New York. But it's interesting because thinking about how class operates, again, social structure, governance structure. The reason we, the reason when we think of social structure in the United States as Africans from the US, we're thinking about the political system, which includes foreign policy. We, again, empire is real. 
when we allow people to divide us, all the, Af the immigrants of African descent who are here, we think of immigration as Latinx issue. No, we, as we know, we know that African people, um, when we think of ourselves as being US people first, no, that's a problem. Often the black elite, although not exclusively the black elite do that. And if they think of themselves as beyond boundaries, it's usually to hook up with other black elites. Let's do business, let's do politics, this kind of thing. But we, we often don't think of the fact that when you think of social, somebody, students will ask me all the time, that car, how does social structure operate? I'm from Jamaica, or I'm from Nigeria, or I'm from Brazil. How does it operate where I'm from? Particularly if where I'm from is majority black people. Then I say, think of social structure in terms of the system in which you live and how governance then becomes your desires, your community's desires in that social structure. And when it's mostly black people, that means class. And so in other words, class is operating. So immediately I said, let me think about this in terms of this banana stuff. So when I went to Harry Belafonte, it was crazy. In 1956, Harry Belafonte now has a career. He's, he's done some movies, he's a big, he's gonna do, he's gonna release this recording. He had done two albums before this, he's gonna do another album. Cause once he got established, now he says, I'm gonna bring the music of the people where my mama and mother and father are from into this environment. Now, by the late 50s, that means he's also going to expand because one of the people he writes about in here that influenced him, of course, was Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson told Harry Belafonte, if you want to know who people are, you learn their songs. And when they learn their songs, they're going to want to know who you are. Like Bob Moses and Charlie Cobb say, when you go in a community, don't go singing your stuff. In fact, Robeson would learn the stuff in their languages. <laughs> we talked about that, right? Belafonte heavily impacted by that. So what does he do? He puts together a whole album called Calypso in 1956, except he's using the music of the Caribbean, but he's not gathering it directly from the Caribbean. He's taking some, in fact, he says, this is very interesting. He says that, um, in fact, he ran into this brother named uh, Lord Burgess. Well, his name was Irving Burton. He was born in Brooklyn. Y'all know Brooklyn is the Caribbean. We know that, right? But you know, in the in the uh, in the uh, in the islands, they call themselves. They get anointed these names: Lord so and so, King so and so. You know, one of my favorites, of course, is the is uh, the great Mighty Sparrow. Mm. Sparrow's still alive. In fact, remember when uh, 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 Belafonte was criticizing Colin Powell, and uh, and Colin Powell was like, "You don't even, and, and you ain't got no reason to criticize me with George Bush and them Empire Bill with. Plus, you don't even really be singing real Calypso. You be singing that recording stuff. My favorite." And he started naming all the Calypsonians, right? He said, "Dude, you know, we know y'all both from Jamaica, but don't be trying to hide behind the music for the fact that you running out here, you and Condoleezza Rice killing people on behalf of your master." We, you know. So, but anyway, but it made me think of Sparrow, of course. When you look at a Mighty Sparrow, who's still alive, right? I mean, one of my favorites, when I first heard this, I was playing on repeat loop, No Doctor No, where he's in Trinidad and they're criticizing the social structure of Trinidad, which is led by a guy who's considered a hero by many people, Eric Williams, the first prime minister of Trinidad. And uh, uh, Sparrow has this song, No Doctor No, where he's basically saying, I voted for y'all and now we don't have nothing to show. <laughs> he said, you know, you raise up on the taxi fare, No Doctor No. Doctor meaning Dr. Williams, you know. We hope you remember, we support you in September. You better come good, good, good. 
because I got a big piece of mango wood. In other words, if y'all don't get, I voted for y'all, I come out in the street, the police start beating me up. What the hell? This is how the governance structure is the people in the lower classes. Who are they to each other? And they're criticizing the people who are elite because those are people who are in the governance structure too, but y'all are beholden to empire. You're beholden to this. So at the end of the song, he's like, because again, this is cultural meaning making. Cultural meaning, in other words, I am criticizing the government, but I know that they may send the police for me. So he says, eh, I only hope you understand. I'm only a Calypsonian. What I say may be very small, but I know poor people ain't pleased at all. <laughs> in other words, he said, you ain't got to worry about me trying to overthrow the government. What I'm trying to tell you is the poor people not pleased. So Belafonte starts gathering the songs of the working class people. These people Garvey saw in Costa Rica and Panama. These are the people he's representing him, Amy, in the UNIA. Belafonte, cultural meaning making, is gonna take this music into the social structure. He's gonna make some money. He's gonna make a lot of money. He's also, he gives the publishing rights to the black people who help him. Bill Attaway and, uh, and Lord, what's the brother's name again? Lord Burgess. Who he, he said, well, the thing about Belfonte, he said, see in the Caribbean, you don't name yourself. They name you. That's the, that's the ways of knowing. <laughs> they call you Lord. They call you Mighty Sparrow. Here in Brooklyn, this dude named himself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And he's taking the music and converting it into songs, which then I dug out the songbook. Because Belafonte said, Here's, here's, here's how you govern. He said, what I learned from watching these white boys, we gonna control. So I'm not only gonna make the record. When they released the record, he said, my, my company was also had an Elvis record they wanted to release. They wanted to hold my record till his second record came out. He said, no, release them the same time, move up to date. He said, Elvis's record was number one. Shortly, Calypso was number two. Then it became number one. And it stayed number one so long that it set the record that was only broken with Thriller. And then he writes in here, he said, but I was cool with that because I like Michael Jackson. And then he tells the story of how he called Michael Jackson and said, uh, I need you to do this song. And Mike was like, cool. And they got their friends together. There comes a time when we heed a certain call. We are the world. That's Belafonte telling Michael Jackson, look, man, Paul Rosen told me, and I'm telling you, let's get this together. We got to figure out a way to help. That, that, did, did it work perfectly? No, but my point is the idea of ways of knowing that happens away from the social structure. So in this book, Belafonte covers, this is what I love about it. You open the book and this is for narrative people. If you're in a narrative, you, don't, you might not know what we're talking about. Harry Belafonte sings, illustrated by Charles White. <laughs> so you got Charles White art, Harry Belafonte, and what does, he collect, what does he collect? The songs of the Caribbean. Oh, no. The songs of the world. The songs of the Caribbean. The songs of Black people in the United States. Then the Caribbean, he says, around the world, mostly these are songs of Africa and Afro-Cubans. So for example, on page 26, the song made popular by the great Afro-Cuban, the great Celia Cruz. Guantanamera, yeah, that song. Guajira, Guantanamera, Guantanamera. He got them all in here with the notes you can sing and all the way down mm. on 
the West Indies section, which is what they call in the Caribbean at this point. Oh, by the way, they published, so they contained, they, they kept all the rights. They kept all the rights, Jamaica farewell. Mm. He said this, he said, Irvin Berge wrote this one, basing it on a traditional West Indian folk song. It is warm and tender quality. Cause he's saying, I'm gonna sing the songs of my people. So y'all know that song. Down at the market, you can hear ladies cry out while on their heads they bear. Aki rice on fish are nice and the rum is fine any time of year. Well, I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back. Come on, President. I know he does harmony. Oh, oh no, you're not gonna get me. Nope. <laughs> my heart is down, my head is turning around. You know, you see the you see the look of Calypso, right? I had to leave a little girl in Kingston Town. He even got Charles White doing some riffs on his regular <laughs> style. But the song we're gonna end with is of course the song that takes us back to what the United Fruit Company did. Because remember, they are in Costa Rica. That's where they get going in their criminal enterprise. And then after World War I, they move. And that's when you see them really occupy the Caribbean. So Belafonte with this incredible, beautiful Charles White of these women, now, these are the Charles Whites you don't see a whole lot of places, right? I remember going to the White Exhibition, and we, those of you who go on narrative, y'all know what I'm talking about. With the exhibition catalog, we did a long thing on Charles White. White. If you don't know the look up Charles White, and then if you're not in narrative, join narrative, because when you see our conversation on White, he says, this is probably the single biggest song in my entire repertoire, along with Matilda. It was traditionally a West Indian song sung by the workers on the docks and on the banana plantations. It was taken by Irvin Berge and rewritten for American ears and for American understanding. Since then, the song has swept onward like a brush fire. Watch this. And I fought madly ever since to stay ahead of the flames. It hasn't been easy. What does that mean? It means that if you see this, if you see Belafonte songs like, you know, um, jump, 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 Giovanna, shake your body light in like uh, uh, Beetlejuice, Y'all playing it for dancing. And you think this is like a light song, a happy song? When you hear, and of course, Sam Cooke takes it, another man who understood the power of recording and owning your master. So when he dies, the white folk take everything he got. And I don't care whether it's his music, which you can't use, except for that's why Regina King and him, you can't use the music. You know, because we're going to, we going to, Sam Cooke going to be on our plantation forever. <laughs> He's dead and he's going to work for us in the social structure forever. Belafonte, early in the game on everything. He gave the publishing rights to Burgess and Attaway and them because he said, I'm a star. I'm going to make money. I'm going to control mine. This may be y'all's money so you get all the rights. But we own it because I started my own company. You get all the publishing rights. So anybody singing, Dale, Dale, you paying that family. Daylight come, none me won't go home. Why are you saying daylight come? Because they made those Africans in the Caribbean gather those bananas at night because it was cooler to do it then. Work all night on a drink of rum. Daylight come and me one go home. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me one go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. 
Daylight come and be one go. People singing. That's nice. It's like, do you understand the class conversation that's being held in that? What they're revealing is our working class people, our poor people around the world are caught in empire. And we may think this is just a local dispute, but it's part of a much larger concept. And anytime we overflow those boundaries, whether it be in the Olympics, anytime we flow those, overflow those boundaries, whether it be in moments of popular song, like when Louis Armstrong, whose birthday is the 4th of August, coming up in a couple of days. And I, on that day, I'm gonna spend all day with Pops. I love him. And we, don't, we, don't go, we that's somebody we have to, we'll do what you uh, must know about because we think we know Louis Armstrong. As Ozzie Davis said on the set of a movie called A Man Called Adam, he said, I saw Louis Armstrong in the, in the dressing room and he didn't know I was to see him. And he had the saddest look on his face I've ever seen. And he said, when he noticed I was there, he turned around, he said, he went back into his thing. Oh man, pops. But y'all go get this book. Penny Von Eschen, Satchmo Blows Up the World. That's him in Egypt, him and Louise in front of the Sphinx. Paul Robeson stood at the Great Pyramid and sang Isis and Osiris. Louis Armstrong went to West Africa. And when he went to Ghana, he sang a song by a brother whose mother was related to the queen of Madagascar. We know him as Andy Rizoff. And, and there's footage in the film Satchmo the Great of Louis Armstrong in Ghana with Kwame Nkrumah in the audience. And he's singing a song to Andy Rizoff, an African born here, who realized that in America, the social structure made us all on the bottom, who understood the way Garvey and them understood that you're gonna get us and you're gonna to try to trap us. And he wrote a song that became what some people call, we talk about Billie Holiday and Strange Fruit, but you should go back to Andy Rizoff's song, the one Louis Armstrong sang for Kwame Nkrumah and them, when Nkrumah invited him and Louise to the Ghana Independence Celebration in 57, the song Black and Blue. Old empty bed. No, 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 no. Let me not do that. Let me not do that. Let me see. Hmm. Let me see. Old empty bed. Springs hot as lead. Beat like old Ned. Wished I was dead. All my life through, been so black and blue. And when you see the footage, you see in Chroma, and you see the Africans like, even the mouse ran from my house. They laugh at you and scorn you too. What did I do to be so black and blue? Armstrong is like, I'm white inside because Razoff is like we're all human you don't use whiteness as the marker I'm the same as you inside but that don't help my case because I can't hide what is in my face how will it in ain't got a friend my only sin is in my skin what did I do to be so black and blue. Then he pulls that horn up and as Louis, and as Ozzie Davis said about Louis Armstrong, he said, I saw him when he didn't think anybody was looking. That's that governance structure. That's the weight Armstrong is carrying. Then he saw me. And even though we're two black people in that governance structure, he didn't want me to carry that burden. He said, but then I understood something about Armstrong. He said, all that smiling and sweat and the handkerchief, 
Ozzy Davis said, we used to call that oofta. We say you're trying to do that to please the white folk. But then I understood. He says, because when Armstrong put that horn to his lips, and if you ever heard Louis Armstrong, after he sing that, then he get on that trumpet. Ozzy Davis said, Louis Armstrong could kill a man. He killed you with the horn. So y'all looking at the teeth and the sweat, you listen to the lyrics. And when you watch that footage and you read the accounts, they say at some point during that, Nkrumah shed a tear. Nkrumah shed a tear because uh, in the words of our young sister, Lucy Alvarado, you understand things. <laughs> and so that's, <laughs> you understand things. You know what I'm talking about. One an African writes the lyrics, an African from New Orleans sings the song, and an African from Ghana responds because you understand things. So let's enjoy the rest of the Olympics and cheer for our sister Gwen Berry, huh, Professor Honey? Yes. Because I mean, we we hoping Gwen Berry medals. <laughs> she gonna medal. She gonna medal. And Protect her gonna, at all costs. Yes, and then we're gonna wait to see what, what color the walls change. Woo! <laughs> Hello, walls, as they would say in the Christian church. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, I, you are, uh, I, I'm speechless. And, uh, you, you know, to, to be able to transform, to, to be able to carry us into those spaces, into these, into these ancestors, into these stories is, is a gift. Um, and I'm just grateful to be here to witness it. So let's thank all our ancestors let's, yes. let's just as we close out let's thank bob moses and glory richardson and max robinson and i'm sorry and and, and yeah yeah mac mac yeah. mac mac, mac, mac. Yes. Yeah. and mac. max both of yeah. them both of the robinsons because i'm reading max and mac. yes because i'm reading randall's book right now and that, that class thing is is so evident um so yeah it's all connected it? that, that, yes. that you're sewing and it's just it's just brilliant uh gloria richardson as you mentioned um dave Den dennis uh cc driver all of the names oh my goodness. let's just you know let's just evoke their names because we need them we need them to do to do what's next and, we and they need, need and they need us because we are the ones here left to do that work and we're doing it. Um, I'm so proud of narrative. The Charles White piece will be up on Monday. Yeah, I'm, saving, I'm saving stuff, you know, just letting it sit and marinate. Mm. And, uh, you know, as we as we move toward uh, releasing uh, our social media platform, which has a name now, it's called Nubia. Mm, with a K, the K is silent, like narrative. Nubia. So we're all, all going to be in Nubia, because uh, that's Nubia. a real place. Wakanda doesn't exist. Wakanda is not real. Nubia is real. So, uh, and all of us Nubians are going to be in there. Uh, and in fact, and in fact, Carrie James Marshall said uh, Wakanda looks a little too close to Dubai for his uh, go oh, read Charlie yeah. Cobb about what it means to want to aspire to be the black bourgeois wherever you are. So, uh, I apologize for that. Um, so, I'll see you next week. We'll be see you uh, next week. Yes, yes sir. We'll, we'll be in full August by then. Yes, and then we'll have uh, the live one uh, the week after. The following but, week, yes. Um, I just, you know, happy birthday to, to Louis Armstrong. And I think we're, we're going to probably do an in, you know, in class, maybe special. We'll see. We'll see. Y'all just stay tuned. Ooh. Like, subscribe, do all of the, give the thumbs up and do all that. But more important than liking and subscribing here, head over to narrative. This is, a to me, I'm, you know, I'm planning it out. We may take us maybe 20 years to, to get it to where it's supposed to be, but it requires all of us to participate. We need as many of us 
us in as possible. Yes, many uh, have so, come, but we need many, many more. Yeah, so if they can they raise fifty thousand dollars in Costa Rica in nineteen twenty-one, and Marcus Garvey, and these people are making dollars a month. Come on. Yeah, I mean this is important. So uh, narrative with a K, know know how to spell it. You know, we'll, we'll just hold the mug up. So yeah. Full things. Rep, rep, red and black. We're not playing. All right. Uh, see you. I'll see you soon. See you very soon. Love, Love you. you.